Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I'm so honored to have somebody who really touched me when I was watching a Mormon Stories interview with you and John DeLynn. And I thought, this is a person that I want to meet. Um, because you're kind of in, navigating in the same waters that I am. Which, of course, so I thought the book that you wrote I thought was the most appropriate book to start my YouTube channel with. And so it's just been a real honor to be able to reach out to you and have a conversation that we're going to have today. Now, the name of the book is A Pentecostal Reads the Book of Mormon by full name, John Christopher Thomas. I think we'll just be calling each other. I'll be calling you Chris, but that's the name. So if you want to look it up and I'm going to have a link in the description. And this really was a fantastic book because Christopher is, comes from a Pentecostal background, and he's a prominent theologian within the, the movement. I'll give you a little background on him. He uh, is a PhD at University of Sheffield, is a Clarence J. Abbott Professor of Biblical Studies at the Pentecostal Theological Seminary in Cleveland, Tennessee, USA, and Director of the Center for Pentecostal and Charismatic Studies at Bangor University in Bangor, Wales, UK. He also serves on the editorial advisory board for the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies. Christopher, Chris, thanks for coming on my show. How are you doing today? It's good to be with you, Steve. Thanks so much for your kind invitation. And uh, let me also thank you for the honor of being your first book review. Um, I, was, um, uh, I was humbled. Uh, by that and uh, very much appreciated that. And of course, as we have a, had a couple of chats, uh, really appreciated getting to know you. Well, I'll tell you, it's been, uh, it's been great to, to be able to conversate. You and I have become fast friends. And, you know, just like I have with like Rick Bennett of Gospel Tangents, he was my first interview, non-author interview, well, kind of, he is kind of an author, but it was more, it was a joint production between Gospel Tangents and Mormon Book Reviews. And um, so that's been a real honor to, to become fast friends with him as well. The people that were about my, well, I've been watching on YouTube and now I'm talking to them. It's just a remarkable thing. And uh, I do need to ask you this, um, if you don't mind. Uh, I want to document the historical period that we're living in. And that is we are in the midst of the, uh, of our little mini apocalypse called COVID-19. And this almost didn't happen because you had a reaction to your second shot. And I just want to know how that went for you and how well you bounced back. Well, uh, it was intense. Uh, had a pretty bad night. Next day, pretty fatigued. Um, had still a little muddled, uh, but uh, doing better today than I did since the time of the injection. So was just thanking God during all of that, that I did not have the virus, uh, if that's how bad the injection uh, affected me. So uh, thanks for that. But yeah, we were kind of keeping all this on hold to see how I was doing. Yeah, you bounced back remarkably. When you contacted me Saturday, I was like, oh man, I thought, well, let's, I, I thought he's going to need a week to bounce back from this one. So, so yes, prayer works, right? It does. <laughs> okay, so Chris, man of your background, writes a book called A Pentecostal, reads the Book of Mormon. How the heck did that happen? How much time you got? 
uh, well, it's um, it's kind of a long story that I'll try to give you the abridged version. Um, I grew up in a Pentecostal family, still Pentecostal. Um, and uh, my first conscious memory of encountering anything Mormon came during the 60s when uh, George Romney was considering a run for the presidency. And I was a little bit of a political junkie as a, just a kid. <clears throat> I remember watching the uh, Republican National Convention and saying to my parents, I kind of like Romney. What, what, why is he not doing better? And they said, oh, we think it's got something to do with his religion. And of course, I didn't quite understand that. And they didn't seem to know much more than that. And then not too long after that, we were up in the Smoky Mountains. And we picked up this woman who was uh, clearly was camping. She had all her goods on her back. And as it turned out, she was LDS. And it was about the time of the construction of the Washington Temple. So I'm assuming this is late 60s. And she informed us that uh, in addition to paying tithe, people who lived in a region were asked to pay extra tithe to help pay for the temple. And so I remember as we let her out, as she made her way to her campsite, I was really impressed with that, you know, and, and my dad said, well, son, you know, uh, we pay tithes as well. Uh, their church is not the only one that believes in tithing. And so those were my kind of initial two encounters. When about January of 74, I was in this choir at university and we were traveling the United States to California and back from Tennessee. And we either coming or going came through Salt Lake City. And we went to the Temple Square and we, um, uh, went through the, they had, it was almost like uh, the, the displays were almost like wax, a wax museum. And uh, I remember going through that. And then in the visitor center, they were giving out these uh, Book of Mormon uh, volumes. Uh, my copy that I received then, very much like that. And now it's just a little lighter blue because of the years. Uh, but I've got my copy down at my uh, office at the school, but that's it, the one you have in your hand. Okay, so I'm going to just jump in here so that everybody can see um, the book. I'm assuming that everybody can. It's a little bit different. I'm still learning here, but yeah, this is the version that you um Yeah, it's quite an iconic uh, cover. Mm -hmm. um, and when I got back, uh, it seems like it was later that fall that a guy, a Baptist minister, named John L. Smith, uh, who had a, a ministry to Mormons, though I'm not sure Mormons quite felt that they were ministered to uh, by, by Brother John L. Um, he had made all these booklets and pamphlets about Mormonism. And I remember acquiring them and reading them all and just kind of being fascinated by it. Then a couple of years later, uh, there, were, uh, there was a move to do a chapel here in our little town. 
and I became friends with a couple of elders who had just moved to Athens and uh, I still remember their names, uh, uh, Norman Levitt and Steve Christensen. And uh, we would meet together every week. I'd ask them questions about the Book of Mormon. They would ask me questions about the Bible. Our ground rules were we'd take about a week to do our research and come back. And um, so we, we became friends. They helped us uh, on their days off do things around the church, actually. We, we were uh, expanding the sanctuary. And so we were having to tear off part of the church to expand the church. And I said at the end of that day, when they were helping us, I said, now lads, today when you write in your proselyting manual, you can say, tore down one church of God. And they, they thought that was hilarious. Uh, Norman, unfortunately, was known as Norman the Mormon here in the South. Uh, but they would come to the house, we'd feed them. Um, that went on for a while. And um, after a while, they were asking the questions that I was asking to their superiors. And I remember we had a meeting and they told me that they had been told they couldn't meet with me anymore. And so uh, I said, okay, I understand that. Uh, but then they said, but you know, we get Mondays off. So we could pretty much do whatever we wanted to on Mondays. So we continued to meet uh, as friends on Mondays. Uh, after they left and I myself went on to another school, uh, I decided to do a, a, a course in Mormon history with Brigham Young Universities. They called it in those days, I think, continuing education or stu home study. And I took a course that, that basically covered the origins of the movement through uh, the wagons crossing the Mississippi on their way west. It's almost as though you could see the uh, lights on the back of the wagons as they were. Uh, and, and we read a book by um, Ivan K. Barrett, uh, whom I understand a lot of people know in the LDS tradition, uh, called Joseph Smith and the Restoration. And so I was even able to use that as the basis of an independent study at Ashland Seminary, where I got three graduate hours of credit on LDS history. Uh, which was very nice of the seminary to work with me on. After that, it would kind of come and go, fits and starts. I would read something that came along, um, you know, read all the, uh, several of the major biographies, um, uh, Brody, uh, Rough Stone, Stone Rolling, uh, et cetera. And uh, about the time I was turning 60, six, seven years ago, I decided I wanted to do a graduate level reading course on the Book of Mormon to kind of tie up all these loose ends. And I was able to arrange to do that at the Community of Christ Seminary in Independence with a guy named Del Luffman, who was just writing a book on the Book of Mormon, Del's uh, passed during this last year, uh, but he was, he was a lovely guy. And somewhere between setting up the week I would spend in Independence uh, and the time I got to Independence, 
uh, it kind of became clear to me what I was supposed to do with all of this. And so I, I felt that I was being called to write a short introduction uh, on the Book of Mormon, about 150 pages, which turned into about, what, 500 or so. Uh, I'm not too good with short things. And so, uh, so yeah, it, it kind of, that's kind of how it all happened. I, I went to Independence. I was given access to the uh, printer's manuscript uh, in the archives. I was given access. They also brought out other artifacts, uh, amongst which was Emma's wedding band, uh, one of Joseph's Bibles. So they treated me very well. Uh, I saw a lot of the historic sites um, during that during that trip, and eventually made my first trip to Utah in terms of, of my work. Um, later that year, I think, at a meeting at a Utah Valley University, which is in the next little town to Provo. And so that's kind of how it all got started. So this is just, uh, it's so interesting because, you know, I'm somebody who, I've talked to you, I'm talking to you and I talked to Rick Bennett and I come to the realization that I've been into Mormon history longer than both of you have. <laughs> I've been interested in, well, I was first interested in it when I was at the age of 10, but really started delving into it, like probably in high school, like reading and researching. So it's been decades long love and interest in, in the movement. And um, so we're kind of both, we both have a unique calling you know, uh, this is a very unusual thing that we're both doing. Uh, you're doing it on a scholastic level. I'm just a lay person who just has an interest, you know. And, um, you know, so I read through this book, you know. I mean, I've read, I read it, loved it. Um, you know, there's some parts where it gets a little dry, you know, uh, but uh, that's just, you know, you plod through it and you get through it and you learn from it. And that's part of learning. And, I, I just, I found it to be a very fascinating thing. And now one of the things like you talk about is, okay, so we're talking about the liter, literary aspect and you talk about the structure of the Book of Mormon and how unusual of a structure is. It's a very unique document and it reads differently than a lot. It sounds like scripture, but reads differently. And we have a, an editor named Mormon and he kind of intrudes on the text now and then. Um, tell me what your thoughts are on how the book is structured. Well, um, yeah, I, I probably should say that as I, as I began my, you know, kind of rummaging around in the Book of Mormon proper, uh, the only way I knew to do that was to do it as I would um, uh, approach biblical documents. And so my own methodologies have moved from kind of the behind the text historical to the what's actually in the text sort of narrative approaches etc and what i learned as i was looking at book of mormon research is that about 90 percent of it was devoted to issues of historicity uh is it true is it not true and nobody, it seemed to me, had done much with some basic kinds of issues like structure. 
in fact, a lot of the, the structural things that had been done tended to be either serving the purpose of apologetics or got co-opted into that. So as an outsider who knew very little about the Book of Mormon, aside from the bit side um, I had picked up over the years, one of the things I, I wondered about was just how do you gain access to it? And um, it, it, and so, um, I, well, what I was going to say is it's been interesting that I've been invited to BYU to lecture on a few occasions. And most recently, it's been to lecture in a Book of Mormon course um, made available to non-LDS students. And I think the idea has been to have somebody outside the tradition try to orient other outsiders to how do you read somebody else's scripture, right? And so for me, the first thing was to kind of figure out what we're looking at. And so I started looking at, at the, the broad structure. Unlike the Bible, the Book of Mormon is attributed to the editorial work of two figures. Mormon and his son Moroni, which gives it gives it a editorial unity that the Bible doesn't have, right? Because you have a collection of documents in the Bible, but you you have um, Mormon's editorial presence and and Moroni. Um, really in major ways throughout the book. Uh, and so I began to kind of figure out the structure based on the books, but also their editorial activity. And then I noticed things like the there were about three major kind of chronological uh, ties throughout the book. You get things dated from the time Lehi leaves Jerusalem. And then that overlaps a bit with the period of the, 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 the time of the judges, the reign of the judges, which then in turn overlaps with uh, the time that Jesus is born. And if you follow those along, and I have a, as you know, a, a chart there that kind of lays out those indicators, it struck me that one could make their way through the book, generally speaking, by following these chronological indicators. Now, people had talked about those three ways of um, tracking the chronology, but nobody that I had read had suggested that's a way to move through the whole document. And so about the time one leaves off, the other one begins. And then you have, in a way, all three of them overlapping at the beginning of the time that Jesus' birth is prophesied. Uh, and so structurally, those are important things. And the fact that they all converge in and around the coming of Jesus uh, says something, it seems, theological about how the, the document views all of that. 
And so from there, it was a matter of looking at each of the books and trying to find any sort of literary markers that the book itself gives, get, sort of gives away its own structure. Uh, as you know, with the Bible and, and, and other sorts of documents, you can impose a structure on documents and preachers are really bad to do this because they got to find the three points, right? Uh, and, uh, but, but my own moves in biblical studies has been to allow the, the, the books themselves to reveal their structure. So that, for example, in book Revelation, you have four in the spirit phrases around which the entire apocalypse seems to be structured. And so that's not me coming to the book of Revelation and saying, ah, this is how I'm going to structure it, and I'm going to give it these names. And so I tried to do that then with, with each of the individual books within the Book of Mormon, which, again, nobody had really done much with. Uh, and so uh, I suppose for me it was kind of a perfect storm because the things I was interested in were underrepresented in the scholarship I was reading. So, yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I, we're going to, we're going to delve a little bit into the content and the theology of the book, but I want us to talk a little bit about what you encountered when you were coming across now, you know, the, the Book of Mormon could kind of be considered a war document. And I tell people that can be expected if you have a war military man editing the book that it might have that, right? And, uh, and there would be an emphasis on that. But one of the things that you found, and I talked about this in the review, and I want to kind of dig in this a little bit, is that in the, in the, in the story of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, okay, you discovered a unique place that they were in the book itself. And what you found was that story is a story where they make the decision not to war, go to war. And they lay down their arms and they basically become pacifists. And this is in an inter interesting place in the book. Tell me, tell me about that. Right, well, I was, um, I was working my way through the book, reading the 1830 edition and uh, sitting right here actually at, at my desk here at the house. And as I read that story, it just dawned on me as I looked at where I was in the 1830 edition that I was just about at the dead center of the physical book. And I wondered, I wonder if this is the very center of the book. And so I, I wrote a, a friend of mine at BYU and said, hey, has everybody, anybody ever counted the words in the Book of Mormon? And his response was, Chris, we count everything. Of course, the Book of Mormon has been counted. And I said, well, can you send me the data on that? And he did. And so I'd kind of approximated it page number wise, but then when I started looking at the word count, uh, it seemed that this story was, if not smack in the middle, which I think it is, very near the middle. Now, literarily, that's kind of significant that something that's in the dead center of the book would appear to 
literary readers and readers created by the text that um, you know this is a very prominent place. Now why that's significant in some ways is because in lots of ways the Book of Mormon is so full of, um, of war stories and especially Alma that I just remember when I would read it, I would think not another bloody war, right? And, uh, but, but what I discovered in the end was that despite this dominant war narrative, that there were these other texts that tended to subvert the war narrative. One of them being um, this anti-Nephi-Lehi story, which uh, is just an incredible story and is one that, um, you know, is at the very heart, the physical, and I would suggest perhaps theological center of the book. Um, you've got things on either side of it um, that also fits in with, with that theme of how it kind of deconstructs that basic war narrative the way it all starts to end, um, you have Mormon really exhausted by war, basically warning his readers, well, if you ever go to war, make sure God told you to. This is terrible stuff. But then it was also by that time, I kind of figured out why we get ether, which is chronologically out of place, but is very near the end of the, the entire book. And it's almost as though, and people have noted that in some ways the book of Ether is kind of the whole story uh, in one book. But canonically then, in terms of where it stands in the book, it seems to add its own voice to the futility uh, of war. And so, yeah, the, the anti-Nephi-Lehi there that's a great story and it kind of anchors a lot of this other kind of narrative that's going alongside the war narrative, if you will. Well, and, and there's a couple of theological things that I want to discuss about that because, you know, I brought up how, you know, at the very center of the book, uh, it's, it's, a, it's peace. And then I referenced the Prince of Peace, you know, Jesus. And, and the reason why I think that's kind of significant is that this, story chronologically happens during the in the Middle East in the Old Testament times so you know these events are happening you know a parallel to them and we don't have in the Old Testament um, this kind of you know the Old Testament can be a very bloody document as well but you have this kind of intrusion into the document of of a of a worldview that is more like turning the other cheek um, loving your enemies. And, and, and so it's almost like the Jesus in the New Testament almost intrudes into an Old Testament era document. And I just think there's some kind of, there's some theology going on there that I find very fascinating. I just want your thoughts on that. Well, you know, that, that, that's, that's fair enough. But in truth, you know, Jesus is already intruding, right? In, in first Nephi, second Nephi, etc. So, so in some ways, if we isolate it, 
it's surprising, but if we take it in terms of the entire kind of narrative, it's not like this is the first thing that jumps out at us because, you know, we get Christ <laughs> and we get the name even much earlier than that. And, you know, where you do get that kind of loop, um, you know, tied off is in third Nephi, Jesus appears, I can't remember his, if it's explicit or implicit, uh, Jesus affirms the, the role of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. They wind up being the only ones in some ways till you get that 200 period, a year period of peace. They seem to be the only ones that actually have been living out the words of Jesus when it comes to war and peace, right? And so in that regard, I think we get that connection, but I think we get the connection explicitly later because Jesus is another one of those kind of substrata <laughs> that runs throughout the narrative, right? So, so yeah, it's, it's similar to that, obviously, uh, if you know words of Jesus, if you know peace church theology, um, I mean, obviously, to me, that's one of the reasons that that story is so appealing. Uh, and it became more appealing when I realized it's, it's location, you know, at the dead center of the book. Yeah, and, and I do want to kind of get into how Jesus intrudes into the text. But I also, it made me start thinking <clears throat> about the theological implications of it happening in the center, but we also have um, this little issue here with the 116 pages that went missing. So I'm, I'm, I'm putting my Mormon theological hat on and I'm thinking, okay, we find this discovery by a Pentecostal about something happening dead center in the Book of Mormon. And to me, if you, if you take this as scripture, that's a significant thing. That's not something to be overlooked scripture or a narrative exactly I mean, it have to be scripture for that to be significant right, right? that's yeah. very yeah very good but within that context if we don't have the 116 pages if they were in the book they didn't get lost then that the implication is that, that doesn't happen dead center in the book uh, because people know that uh, it's basically the it wasn't 116 pages that were lost it was actually more like 300 pages. So it actually would, this is the, the study he did. And there's actually some evidence that definitely looks like it was at least 300 pages. So it would have skewed where that story would have happened, most likely, like I'm talking about the theology. So I think there should be some Mormon theologian out there. And, and so, so us two outsiders can, you know, maybe give some recommendations here. They need to study that because now Mormons believe in pre or, you know, things be preordained. Uh, those plates, those other extra plates, the small plates were found that uh, covered the same territory. But if those if those pages don't get lost, that narrative structure that you talked about doesn't happen. Now, you and I can speculate, but I guess I'm at throwing this out to our my Mormon theologian, LDS theologian friends, you know, th that's something to grapple with. And there might be some nuggets of uh, information or <laughs> some things that might enlighten the text even more in that regard. Well, it's complicated uh, in, in this regard. My, my, study, my study has kind of focused on final form of the text. 
right? I've not paid attention in a sense to what lies behind the text. I've not interpreted the Book of Mormon based on the fact that these are replacement plates that we start with and how that, you know, affected whatever the original was. Methodologically, what happens is, and I've had this question raised a few times, Steve, uh, there's a debate amongst Book of Mormon scholars as to how do you, how you approach the book. Do you approach it canonically or do you approach it in its dictation order? So if the, the first 116-ish pages are lost and it appears that, that Joseph continues the translation in Mosiah, then the last thing that gets added are the words of Mormon after, you know, everything ends and then begins again. And you can make an argument that if you're looking at things primarily historically, that you follow the, the dictation order, right? So the first thing you would get at would be Messiah and then all the way around. But, um, I'm kind of suspicious of using sacred texts um, based on kind of um, trying to get at the historicity behind the text. I mean, I think you can do that, but the text itself is a narrative. And so in some ways it doesn't matter to me how many pages were lost. I mean, Don, uh, you know, Don, has done a lot of work in tracking all that down um, because that's not the form of the document that we have, right? And I do think it's an interesting thing to think about, but to me, probably less interesting than it is to people more historically oriented, if, if, that, makes, if that makes sense. Um, I think what most historical oriented approaches come away from all of that is, ah, well, isn't that an interesting coincidence that this is at the middle of the book? And, you know, for me as a narrative oriented person, it doesn't matter if it's a coincidence or not, it's there, that's significant narratively, theologically, et cetera. So you put your finger on a issue that kind of goes off in all, all different directions. Um, and I'm sure that there are people, well, first of all, I'm not quite so sure how many, um, I mean, I've had, I've had good feedback on that observation about the center of the book. Uh, I'm not so sure how widespread that, that is, that interpretive position has been adopted even though I know it has been by certain folk I really respect. Um, so I wouldn't presume that they're all, all Book of Mormon scholars are like, oh, well, what can we do, do with this? Uh, but I do think that for those that take narrative seriously, that that, that might be something they would want to think through. Sorry to get so far in the weeds on that, but, but you, you know, you're, you're putting your finger on something that I think has uh, implications in a lot of ways, perhaps even unintended ways. Yeah, and, that, and that's actually why I wanted to talk about it, because um, 
I just, when I, when you think of the implications of it. So, you know, I wanted to delve in that because I just think it's just very fascinating, especially if you love the Book of Mormon and it's scripture to you. I think, you know, it's, it's a worthy endeavor to, to maybe explore, explore those avenues. So, okay. So you and I are two outsiders, um, both come from pretty, pretty similar backgrounds. There are differences and we don't have to get into that with our audience, but maybe one day we could talk about that. But one of the things that I try to tell my evangelical friends is that, you know, this book, the Book of Mormon, and I'm going to pull my 1830 replica from RLDS 1970, I believe. And um, this was, of course, the, the, the manuscript you were, you were working off of. And um, I tried to explain to them, say, listen, you know, um, this book is a very Protestant Christian book. You know, sometimes I'll even have Christians go to me and say, you know, the reason why these people fall for these cults, as they call them, like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormon or whatever, they say is they don't have enough Bible knowledge. They don't know their Bible. I said, no, it's actually exactly the opposite. I said, one of the reasons why the Book of Mormon took off is because it was amongst a very biblically literate audience. Everybody knew the Bible, just like they knew Star Wars. We know Star Wars and stuff like that. Everybody knew the content of the Bible. So it saturated the culture. So it wasn't ignorance of the Bible that caused people to embrace this book. It was actually people who, were, who knew the Bible. And so I, I try to explain that to them. But I also try to explain that, you know, what you know as, quote unquote, Mormonism, uh, Mormon doctrine, the, the, the more, uh, you know, like the temple stuff and um, the, the views on God, um, baptism for the dead, even though that's technically in the Bible, um, those kind of things um, aren't in this book. So there's a lot of theology in here that a, I think a Methodist would feel very comfortable with this book. And I think it's important that we kind of explore the theology, some of, some of the areas where it is very Protestant, very Christian, and then other areas where it deviates. So why don't you address that? Right. Um... Yeah, there, there's a scholar that was at Utah State for a number of years that's down at the Maxwell Institute now named Phil Barlow, uh, who wrote a book called Mormons and the Bible. And he has a statement there that says that something like the reception of the Book of Mormon would have been impossible apart from the biblical context in which it came forth. And I think he's right about that. I mean, that's a different way of saying part of what you're saying. And what that observation kind of sparked in me was one of the projects I've been working on more recently has been to try to determine by looking at the readers implied by the Book of Mormon, what they know of the Bible. Not what the readers feel was focusing on, the first readers, but the readers kind of constructed literarily. Right, what did they know? And I've gotten through an initial chapter which looks at sort of intended readers that seem for the most part to be the readers at the time the book comes forth. 
1830, 1829 ish. But by the time you get to the end of 1st Nephi and then the end of 2nd Nephi, certainly you have in embryonic form, at least, readers who know nearly the entire biblical canon. You get books of Moses named. You get Isaiah, obviously, named. You even get the book of Revelation named, right, prophetically. So, so it seems to be a combination in terms of the, the world of the narrative that you either have access to much of what we would call the Hebrew Bible in, uh, in the plates, and then access to much of what we would call, at least parts of what we would call the New Testament, by prophetic insight, right? And so, yeah, I mean, I think that it's, um, I think you describe it correctly. It shows up in a biblical environment. There are accounts uh, of um, folk who make the very observation you make uh, about how it confirmed for them that this was scripture because of how biblical it was. As for the theology, you know, there's this rather famous statement by Alexander Campbell, who says that the Book of Mormon addresses and seeks to settle all the theological controversies of the 1820s, et cetera, which I think is a, a way of saying something very similar. Um, and, uh, uh, to say it's in this context that it makes sense. It is a rather Protestant document in many ways. Now, obviously, there are Protestants that'd be quite offended by the baptism by immersion and the ruling out of infant baptism, right? Uh, that's not my side of the tradition by any means. But so, you know, and, and one of the interesting things to me in my engagement with lots of L LDS friends, I mean, I, I, I uh, engage with folk across the, the restoration, but in particular, my LDS friends is how that Protestant is sort of this almost one size fits all descriptive term, which most Protestants don't recognize at all, right? And so to say it's Protestant, you know, there are similarities doctrinally and even practice-wise with a large swath of what you might call 19th century Christianity, right? And so, so yeah, I mean, it's, it, um, there's a lot in the book that that would sound familiar to those ears, I think. Yeah. 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 And then of course and I you're always exactly right. And you're exactly right about what's not in the book that's in made that are major components of LDS doctrine. Right. And 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 all of that seems to come later. Now now how some LDS folk push back is to say it's all in the Book of Mormon embryonically. 
But if all you've got is the Book of Mormon, you don't come to that conclusion at all. Uh, and it seems that it does. You know, there's this great book. You might want to have this guy on sometime um, by a guy named Charlie Harrell uh, called This Is My Doctrine. And what Charlie does is he kind of tracks the development of major kind of LDS doctrines as they unfold or as new uh, revelation comes, etc. cetera. Uh, it's one of the best pieces I've ever read. And I don't think I could have written my theology section without Charlie's book. He's a retired uh, BYU professor uh, and, and one of the loveliest people on the face of the earth. Absolutely no ego. Uh, ironic, affable. So Charlie, if you ever hear this, there's the shout out, my good man. Yeah, well, you know, that's, as you and I have been navigating these waters, that's one thing that I think we both, and we're going to talk about that um, later on, but I just want to insert this here, just since you brought it up, that, you know, we both have had very positive experiences with a lot of people within the restoration. And I think that's part of the reason why um, you and I um, have continued on this journey is because it's a fascinating book. The Book of Mormon is fascinating and it's worth studying and taking seriously as a document. And one of the things that you did was you just let the text speak for itself. Tried to do that. Yeah. And, and you didn't try to insert you into it. <clears throat> you, you, you gave your observations, but it was important that you let the, the book itself speak. Yeah, you know, if I could just insert one other thing there, Steve, that it was amazing how little had been written on the theology of the book itself. A uh, fair amount had been written on its similarities and dissimilarities to the Bible. But I couldn't find anything much that just asked the question, what is the theology that emerges out of the Book of Mormon itself? Uh, which was very surprising to me. Now, one of my, one of my friends at, at BYU, um, you know, um, uh, kind of a gray beard like myself, um, longstanding scholar there, he, uh, he said it was because of the continuing revelation that everything is somewhat provisional, right? And so in some ways, having a uh, focus on um, Book of Mormon theology would be, um, you know, superseded as things happen next. Right. So, for example, I do a little section on hell because uh, hell shows up somewhat prominently in the book, but it almost immediately gets demythologized by um, words of Joseph Smith almost as soon as the book appears. So that may be kind of one of the reasons why you didn't get that. What you would tend to get were in what I was reading were somewhat generic statements about the theology, but I was quite interested in, well, what does the book itself say about these topics? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think 
fundamentally one of the biggest um, divergencies that happen theologically is that there is basically the concept of the fortunate fall that's spoken of in the book. Now, you and I touched on this a little bit. I can see how some Christians could kind of make that argument on a philosophical sense that if Adam and Eve didn't fall, um, we wouldn't be here. And I know there's also in Mormonism, there's theological implications that would later also be very, you know, talk, you know, would influence their theology later on, Nauvoo era theology. But the idea of it being a fortunate fall does make this, uh, does differ, differentiate itself from uh, from our worldview, I guess you could say, or our theology. Yeah, and what what's interesting, one of the interesting things to me about that is you have a, a certain tension in the Book of Mormon because the fall will get defined in ways that many Protestants would identify with. But standing alongside that understanding is this idea of the fortunate fall, that this was not wholly negative, that this was positive. Uh, and yet you have in the book those voices that talk about it being negative as well. And I think for most of us, I say most of us outsiders, we would be quite surprised by the fortunate fall. I think for some of our LDS friends and others, they might actually be surprised that uh, there is this other stream that's going on in um, of interpretation in terms of the fall. Yeah. Yeah. Tension, a lot of interesting tension going on in the book, and you could explore the implications of all that, and and that's always an interesting place to go. So I'm thinking here that we are kind of uh, heading towards a uh, the Pentecostalism of the Book of Mormon now, and I want to delve into that with you in our in our next uh, segment. Um, and so, Chris, I just want to thank you for uh, sitting down with me and uh, having this engaging conversation. Um, I want to ask everybody to like and subscribe, and I will be providing a link to uh, Chris Christopher's book in the description. I want to thank you again and have a nice day.